following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you have your Bible before you there, would you turn it to Ezekiel, please? This morning, Ezekiel and the 18th chapter. This is an interesting chapter because there is in it a proverb, and not all proverbs are biblical proverbs, and this is one of them. Although it's found in the Bible, what God is doing here is saying this proverb is a false proverb, and then he explains at great length what he means by that. The proverb, you know, there's all kinds of aphorisms and witty sayings that people say even today. Not all of them are true, are they? They may have some kernel of truth, but they're not biblical necessarily. And here we go in Ezekiel 18. The scripture says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you understand the idea of that? When you eat something sour, it's your teeth who are that are set on edge, not your children's. So the idea is that they're saying the fathers did something bad, now we are paying for it. We are being punished by God for it. As I live, says the Lord God, verse 3, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence and did what is not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. 
Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept my, all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This is the trouble with intergenerational warfare, intergenerational punishment, even the idea of reparations. Now I got your attention, didn't I? Didn't I? Yes, you see. The sons are not paying for the sins of the fathers, and the father's paying for the sins of the son. That's why if you know, a son does a criminal act, they don't put the parents in jail. The parent does a criminal act, they don't put the children in jail. But then, of course, it creates the moral hazard of a child that has no parent or only one parent because the other one's in jail, and then people complain about that. Well, you, justice has to have some edge to it. You know, it's not, you can't just get rid of it. But the fact is, God's economy is not to allow us to punish children for the sins of the father, certainly grandsons, great-grandsons, and so on. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, this is verse 21, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Now, you might read this and say, wow, it sounds like this guy has atoned for his sins. Well, Ezekiel's not going into the whole theology of it. The guy hasn't atoned for his sins. His sins have been forgiven by God. And we know that they've been forgiven because of the work of Christ, paying for them on the cross. But he's turned away. He's repented of his sin. He's believed in God. He begins to do right, and God forgives him. Verse 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? This is the thing. The scriptures are very clear that God does not take joy in the death of the wicked. Hard-headed, hard-hearted people, God does not delight to send them to eternal condemnation. It's a grief in a way, to his soul. At the same time, of course, he's ordained that those who don't believe in Christ, don't believe in him in the Old Testament context, would face that outcome. But you have to understand the heart of God. He, he doesn't want, it's not like he likes the idea. He wants people to turn from their wicked ways and live. Why? Because that's the best thing for them. He doesn't want them to go down a destructive, self-destructive path. Verse 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Now, I should almost correct myself in a sense because we have to remember in the Mosaic covenant context, we are talking about physical life here very heavy emphasis on physical life. If you obey God, you will prosper and live. If you disobey God, you'll be cursed and your life will be cut short. That's a Mosaic covenant promise, not one that applies to us today because we're not under that covenant today. But that's why we can say this kind of so starkly here. Verse 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. 
Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? <laughs> Boy, if you start getting into an argument about, with God about what's fair and what's not, you've already lost. You've already lost. You don't, don't even start that. Because what we deserve is punishment for our sins. That's all. Verse 26, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Now, nobody else's fault here. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. You know, why do they say that? Because the fathers have eaten the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Their proverb has taught them falsely. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Oh, there it is right there. For why should you die, O house of Israel? We have a mission song that uses that phrase, don't we? Why will ye die? The voice of God is calling. Why will ye die? You're going to choose death? My friends listening online, perhaps somebody who does not know the Lord, you need to repent and get a new heart. And get a new spirit within you. God will do that if you ask him. Why would you want to go the road down to death? God says, finally, for I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Ezekiel 18. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 1. We have a lot of good things here we can talk about. And we'll dig in and start looking at them again here. We're in our third message in our series in Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then the book of Philippians in the order that we're given in our New Testament. Our brother's reminding me of a former pastor's mnemonic device to remember Gentiles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and that was that Gentiles eat pork chops. It's true. Yeah. Uh, G-E-P-C. So a good way to remember those books. There's some, there's other ones that are harder for me to remember the order of. Uh, you know, try to rattle off the 12 minor prophets in order. Can you do that? That's a good exercise uh, because you want to be able to find the books in the Bible when somebody says turn to, um, you know, well, I can't say Malachi. That's easy. That's the last one. But you know, Jonah or Obadiah or Nahum or something and, and see if you can find it all right. We uh, tr- touched on uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 8 last time, and I said there were a number of issues that we still could work on there, and I'm going to see if I, if I can fit those in here in our series little by little, not to make a, you know, another whole message on verses 1 to 8, but we did say, uh, for example, there was an issue of what's the defense and confirmation of the gospel and so on, and I'll, I'll get there eventually, but I feel led at the moment to take us right into verses 9 through 11, because here the Apostle Paul finishes his prayer 
for the Philippians, the prayer that he's recorded. He's really telling them how he prays for them on a regular basis. And this is a great model for us as we think about how to pray for our own church family, even for our spouses and for our children and our loved ones. Pray this way. You know, we often are kind of guilty in a sense, really, we're guilty of focusing on the here and now and the prayer about health issues and and sickness and jobs and schooling and, and those sorts of things. But what about the spiritual condition of the people for whom we are praying? And that's where Paul is focusing. Now, he, he starts by saying, look, basically, thank you for your love for me. I, he expresses his love for them. Again, he, he, has, he says, I have you in my heart. It's not saying, you know, I love you people, but it's basically saying that. I have you in my heart. You are special, special people to me. They were, uh, you know, as you might imagine, held a very special place in his heart. What if you walked into a a new city and met a few people and shared Christ with them and they they became born again, they got a new heart, a new spirit, they they started a new church, and, and God had used you to do that. Those people would probably hold a special place in your heart, wouldn't they? As well they should. And so he offers thanks for them and tells them that he longs for them with the affection of Jesus Christ, that he he wants to see them again in effect, although he doesn't say it in so many words. But, you know, after, you you know, you've been kicked out of a city, well, put in prison, beaten, put in prison, kicked out of the city by the leaders, uh, and he went back and forth and visited there several times. But now he's back in prison in another place in Rome, and it's just a very difficult time for him. You can imagine his feelings toward them elevated because of the depth of the situation in which he finds himself sitting in jail. And it wasn't like, you know, a five-star hotel with, you know, three wonderfully prepared meals every day and all of that. It was a, it was a real dungeon, a real bad situation. And others had to come along and help him and provide and, and give him according to his needs. But here's what he says when he finishes talking about those matters, he says in verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, I, when I've taught this before, I wasn't as careful as I should have been. I said there are three prayer requests here. Really, there's two, according to the original Greek text, and each one has kind of a result, if you will, or what the result is supposed to be. And so we'll look at those in turn, and they're connected to each other, these prayer requests. And the first one is this, very simply, Paul is praying that they have a discerning love which knows what is best, a discerning love which knows what is best. Uh, He says that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And here's where the best part comes, that you may approve the things that are excellent, those that are most worthwhile, those that are not worthless. Let me try to break that down a little bit for us this morning. True godly love is at the heart of the Christian faith. The apostle is not praying for an increase in self-love. God knows we don't need more of that. Uh, 
He's not praying that we have an increase in love for the world. Why? Because the love of the world is not coordinate with the love of the Father. They're opposites to each other. So he's not praying for that kind of love. He's praying for an all-around godly kind of love. God has designed us, first of all, to love him with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength. He commands it. This is the summation of the Old Testament law, that you would love God that way, and that really sums up, you know, we'll say half of the law of Moses. The other half of the law of Moses is summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we talk about the Great Commission very often in churches like ours, but we also need to keep in mind the Great Commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. He, he is... He's made us, God has made us Christians to love Christ and to show it by keeping his commands. One of his commands, one of his exemplary commands is to serve one another. He did so by washing the feet of the disciples. Uh, he commanded them to pray in the name, his name, bring their request before the Father. Uh, he commanded them to love one another, which we'll come to just now. But you show your love for him by keeping his commandments. He is designed, let me back up for a second. What am I saying here? Paul is praying that your love may abound. What kind of love is he talking about? He's not talking about self-love or love for the world. He's talking about all the aspects of divine love that you could think of in your relationships with everything and everyone in the universe, to God first, to those close to you, to your neighbors, to your church family, and all the rest. Your love in general, he wants it to abound in all the areas where it needs to abound. And how's that love, by the way, is defined kind of in 1 Corinthians 13 for us, isn't it? If you don't have love, you're but a sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. You don't have any, you're not doing anything of value, but love is kind and forbearing and long-suffering and all of those things, Does, thinks no evil, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That's the definition of agape, Christian love towards anyone or anything uh, in the world. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, I want your love to abound toward God, toward your neighbor, the Bible, uh, toward Christ. The Bible says that God has designed wives to love their husbands and children, Titus 2.4. The women are, are commanded to love their husbands and children. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.25 makes that very clear. Notice the love for Christ, or the love for the wife, rather, is as the love of Christ for the church. That's a high calling, my gentlemen, friends, in your homes, and likewise the wife toward her husband. God calls for church members to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Think of John 13, 34. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If people look at you and people around you and say, there's no love there, then you're not demonstrating that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. A very poor demonstration, in fact, a non-existent demonstration of discipleship if there's no love in those close relationships. Uh, John 13 talks about loving one another. John 15 about loving one another. Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything but the debt of love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and 4.9, you've been taught by God to love one another. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, the Thessalonians continue to love one another. 
that verse that I already quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you would love one another with a pure heart fervently. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4, 2 John verse number 5, the Bible is full of commands that we are to love one another. He calls us to serve others with compassion and concern, with diligence in this matter of love. And so he's praying that your love may abound still more and more in the midst of your life circumstances. Do you do that? Simple application here. Think of all those departments, those mailbox slots, those, those, those boxes in your life. My love in this area toward God, toward my spouse, toward my children, toward my church, toward my neighbors. Is there any deficit? You know, how are, how are the levels? You know, you're in the green or are you down in the orange or the red on that? Very important. Paul is praying that our love would abound. Of course, you don't generate that yourself. That's to be generated in you by the work of God and His Spirit toward people. I mean, who's worthy of your love, by the way? Who's worthy of it? Are you worthy of God's love for you? I would think we would all humbly say, no, I'm not really worthy. I wasn't worthy. I'm still not worthy. But God has loved us when we didn't deserve it. And he does that in part to show you that you need to love people that don't deserve it. Paul is praying that the church will be abounding in this kind of love toward one another. This is how we should pray for our fellow Christians too, not just, I don't want to use this just as an application for you you or for me, but to remind you to pray for your fellow Christians this way. You know, don't pray for so-and-so's, you know, sciatica, which is important to pray for. Don't just pray for that, but pray that their love will abound. Pray that, you know, any health issue is not the main issue for which you pray for some people. That's why it's so important for us when we, when we get a prayer request for somebody we don't know, you know, they have cancer. Well, actually, do they know Christ? If they don't, well, we start praying about that more than we pray about their cancer situation, even though they might not recognize that the, that the cancer is less important than their spiritual condition. But we pray for our fellow believers this way, that we pray that they would have love abounding. We tend to love ourselves, of course, and all of that. But, you know, we pray for people's love to abound toward one another and toward God because we know it's so often interrupted. In other words, I I would pray for you to like this, and you can pray for me like this, because so often our love for for the right things is interrupted, is damaged. We may be like the Ephesians and leave our first love toward God especially, but maybe toward our spouse or toward the things of God, or maybe we're a little dry in a dry spell and our love for the Word of God has taken a hit. We're not in the Word as we should be. Maybe toward our spouse or our children or our parents, we're just kind of grumpy. Our love has diminished. 
Pray for others that their love will abound. I want to emphasize, too, that this is not merely uh, Paul criticizing the Philippians. He's not really criticizing them at all. He knows that they have love in their hearts toward him and toward each other, but he's saying he wants it to abound. And who of us could say, that prayer request doesn't apply to me? I've got it all under control. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do in the area of loving God and loving my neighbors and loving my spouse and children and all. Who of us could really say that? No, this is not a criticism. This is a prayer for uh, abundance, a prayer request for multiplication of the love that we express. Now, Paul goes on to qualify this to some extent by saying, I pray that your love may abound more and more. This is like multiplication words here, exponentiation. But he says, I want it to abound in knowledge and all discernment. Christian love is an informed love. It's based on the information of God's word, not the information of society, not the information of feelings, not the information of convenience, but it's informed by God's word. And it's a discerning or discriminating love. Don't use the word or think of the word discriminating in that kind of sense that you might automatically think of a discrimination. Oh, it's a bad thing. No, discrimination when it comes to what is good and evil is a good thing. It has nothing to do with the modern race issues and all of that sort of thing. Discrimination. You have, you have discriminating tastes. You have discernment about good and evil. That's what we're talking about here. Are you able to, to look at something and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that because it, it, it dresses up in a nice suit, but it's just full of rottenness and dead men's bones on the inside. I have enough discriminating taste to know that. But if I'm discerning and I see that person or that thing that needs the love of God in their life and I'm able to express that to them, that's excellent. This discernment is a moral perception. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about a spiritual sense of something? It's not, you know, touch, taste, smell, hear, the five senses of the physical body. It's that sixth sense of spiritual perception. I, I've often thought that, you know, I have the sense of the pastoral sense by years of experience in observing people when they behave a certain way or speak a certain way, I know something's going on. That's the sixth sense that we're talking about here. This spiritual, moral understanding or perception of the truth of things. The true love for which the apostle prays cannot be a misdirected feeling that puts love, in quotes, ahead of all Bible or brains but rather loves within the boundaries of, the, of knowledge and truth and holiness, according to the Bible. One commentator said this about it. Love must be intelligent and morally discerning, however, if it would truly be agape love. It has to be intelligent. It's not stupid, in other words. It's morally discerning. It's not blind to the truth of the situation. Now, today... Love is love, in quotes, love is love is a popular sentiment. 
But what does it mean? Love is love. First of all, it's meaningless because it's a tautology. It's like saying one is one. It means nothing. Now, they're actually trying to say something more than nothing when, when that statement is used, but it's, it's, it's trying to say that all loves are equal and valid. But that's patently false. Patently. Ob- that means obviously false. Some loves, in quotes, are criminal and land the lover in jail. Some loves are harmful to the person loved or the person doing the loving. The Bible declares that some loves, in quotes, are illicit and worthy of divine judgment. That brings hatred upon Christians, the representatives of God on earth, from those who want unfettered access to whatever perversion their heart desires. They love certain perverse things, and they want those things, and so when we say, no, you can't have them, they get angry at us. Just like John the Baptist. Herod, no, it's wrong for you to take your brother Philip's wife to be your own wife. Well, Herod didn't like that, and of course, the the girl didn't like that, really didn't like that, because she had her lusts involved, and so they killed him. Sometimes people in power will do that, because you say, no, love is not love. Not popular. It doesn't matter if it's popular. It's truth. Love is not love. Love has to be discerning. It has to be in accordance with knowledge and moral perception. You cannot love well if you don't know the Word of God well. You cannot love well if your spiritual senses are not exercised to be able to discern good and evil. You just simply cannot. You end up loving. You know, you'll try if you're kind of ignorant of the Scriptures and of, and of the nuances in the Bible and, the, and the, the full context of it. But you, and you might try to love properly, but you're going to misapply it if you don't have knowledge and discernment about it. Maybe you do that often if you're not informed. Or maybe from time to time and you get into embarrassing and sinful situations You might even think that a feeling is love when it's not, in fact, love. I've used this phrase before. Somebody says, I love this or I love that or I love her or I love him. And I say, no, just replace the word love with lust. That's what it is. You lust after that thing or that person. You don't really love them. Otherwise, you wouldn't be considering doing the things that you're doing that are out of step with the Scriptures. You must have the Spirit guided perception of things to get this right. And that Holy Spirit guidance is found in one place, and that's the Bible. And that's why Paul prays that your love has to abound in more knowledge and discernment. God designed humans and gave us the gift of love. He knows where love is properly directed, and it's never properly directed to something or an affinity toward things or situations that are unholy. Biblical love does not unqualifiedly accept all behavior, regardless of whether it is sin. It draws near. God's love draws near to holiness and departs from iniquity. It approves of things that are superior and disapproves of those things that are not. So we move on in verse 10 where it says that you may approve the things that are excellent. 
So here's what, here's what this means. This love that God is enjoining upon us and that Paul's praying for and that I'm praying for you and I hope you're praying for me is a, is a love that evaluates and discerns the real value of something. So, for example, this word to, um, in verse 10, to approve the things that are excellent, it's, it's got the idea of testing with the idea of the outcome of the test. Um, you know, the, remember the guy in the Gospels in Luke who said, I bought a, a, a yoke of oxen and I have to go test them. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 speaks of deacons. Let them first be examined, tested, and see if they can serve. First Peter 1.7 speaks of the proof or testing of our faith. So this approval process, this, this discernment, examines things to see if they're worth more or superior to other things. Matthew 6.26 speaks about people being more valuable than the birds of the air, than the sparrows that fall to the ground that God even keeps track of. As, and here it, it refers to things that really matter. The approval, that you would approve the things that are excellent. This talks about the approval of things that really matter. Excellent things. The best things. The things that are worth more. The fact is, I think, correctly, that we spend a lot of love on things that are worthless, useless, and foolish. This instruction is about ways, about way more than just doing things that are not explicitly sinful. It's about loving things that we discern to be the best, excellent things, worthwhile activities. For example, I was just thinking productivity. That's a worthwhile, valuable trait. But true Christian productivity spends time on the things that are the best things, not just getting things done. And this, as I mentioned before, is a never-ending quest. Paul prays that the Christian's love may grow and become more knowledgeable, more discerning, that it would never arrive at a point of completion. It's an ongoing project. In other words, it's not a criticism, as I said before. They were demonstrating their love, and Paul was praying that they would abound yet more and more. And without diligence, you can forget for a time and your love can grow cold. So it's important that we pray for one another, uh, these excellent things. So my prayer for you folks in Fellowship Bible Church, you folks at Hiawatha who have graciously joined us this morning, is this, that your love would abound in more knowledge and discernment and that you may approve the things that are excellent. Spend your love that is your life, on things that are the best things, not things that are useless and foolish and uh, mere maybe entertainment value, but things that are really substantive. Second request Paul makes is in verse number 10 in the middle, after he prays that they would be able to approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. If you're living like that with an abundant love toward the things that are worthwhile and valuable, the things that are eternally worthwhile and valuable, let me say it that way, the things that God considers valuable, if you're doing that, then you're going to be then normally, naturally rather, on this path of being sincere and without offense 
until the day of Christ. Sincere means pure, without hidden motivations, without pretense, without hypocrisy. There's no covering for something that is amiss under the hood. Blameless, likewise, it means without fault due to an offense of some sort. We should be consciously involved in the pursuit of a blamelessness before God. Paul said, I've lived with diligence, Acts 24, 16, to be without blame before God, to have a clear conscience, in other words. This includes our best efforts to avoid offense toward people, Jews and Gentiles in the church of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 32. We want to avoid that, avoid throwing stumbling blocks before our brother's way. And the end point of our sincere and blameless conduct is what? Look at verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense. Till the day of Christ. The day of Christ. It's the day upon which each one of us. Now, look at your life, the things that are before you. In light of that day, when you are going to stand before God and give an account of yourself. Are those things that are lying in front of you today all that significant? Are they that deep? Are they, you know, earth-shattering that you would overlook the coming day of judgment in your response to these things today and go off and sin and do all kinds of things that you shouldn't be doing? This is the day in which each of us will give an account to God and we pray that God will Evaluate us, well done, good and faithful servant. That future day must purify our lives today so that we would not be ashamed before him at his coming. That, in other words, what's coming in the future does have an impact today. You have an evaluation coming tonight because we're speaking about our words being a basis for our judgment. I'm going to go into a lengthy part of the message that's just simply going to review a bunch of Bible texts that talk about a future coming day of judgment. I think, you know, we, maybe I haven't talked about that much lately, or or we don't like to think about it, or we just kind of, we, we lose the sense of that. But my friends, there really is a day coming in which we will give an account of our lives. It's not as stressful as uh, my Ph.D. dissertation defense was or my ordination council or uh, my uh, doctrinal defense before the seminary faculty back in 2003 or whatever year it was, 2004 or 5. Uh, as stressful as those things are, as important of milestones as those things are, we're looking at, you know, as important as your college graduation was, your final senior project and all that, that is nothing compared to the fact that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and that ought to put a little fear of God into us. At least a little, yes? I mean, well, we know that perfect love casts out fear, and that we love God, and that He loves us, and that Christ has paid for our sins, but, can I say, but still? But still? We're going to stand mano a mano, face to face with God? And, 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 and give an account? Woo! Lord, spare us. Lord, spare us. We're going to face that day. 
We each will give our own account, Romans 14 says. I, I think we read this verse earlier this morning. Don't worry about the account everybody else is going to give. Don't worry about your husband or your wife or your children or your neighbor or, or the other person in the church. You're like, oh, man, they really got a messed up life. You, yourself, have to give an account of yourself to God. That's between their situation, between them and God. Instead, we're to focus on not causing them to stumble or put any obstacle in their way, to help them along the way. If we're so concerned about them, you know, no gossip, rather help them. See also Second uh, Corinthians 5.10 there, where Paul says, you know, we uh, have a subpoena basically to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you cannot ignore that subpoena. It is going to come. You can't say, well, I'd just rather opt out of that. It's like kind of like, you know, all the debates today or the, the issue today about people being subpoenaed up to Congress. And I can't imagine receiving a subpoena from Congress and saying, eh, you know, forget it. I'll just, you know, I'll blow it off. But some people are doing that and have done that. But yet, this, this subpoena cannot be blown off. You will appear. Whether you like to appear or not, you might be dragged kicking and screaming and leg chains and everything else, as it were. But you'll be there. You'll be there before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of whether we've done good or bad. Might I suggest this paraphrase of that evaluation, whether our works have been loving, discerning, whether we've focused on the best and been sincere and without offense, or whether some of our lives have been worthless and impure and undiscerning. That's the kind of thing we'll be giving an account for. Now, the way that a person can be this way, besides you know, living with this kind of love that we talked about in verse 9, is to be filled with the fruits of righteousness, verse 11, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just a couple of comments on this before we close. The scripture is telling us here, the verb uh, is in the perfect tense, it's telling us that we have been filled uh, as a Christian, God has already given you the resources to live a life filled with righteousness. You have been filled already. You need to bring those fruits to fruition, to fulfillment. As a Christian, God has already given you those fruits, and you need to work them out. He's already ordained for us to do good works, hasn't he? We just have to get with the program and do those good works and that our lives would manifest this kind of fruit day by day. This fruit is the fruit of righteousness. It's kind of like what John the Baptist said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, stop doing what you were doing. Start doing something else that's righteous. Here are the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Um, think of passages that talk about fruit. I've left some in the notes for you to look up later. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering goodness and gentleness and faith and meekness and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Or Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of, of the Spirit is in all light and, and goodness and faithfulness. John 15.28, Jesus says, the Father prunes the vines so that they will produce more fruit. Hebrews 12, James chapter 3, the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of peace is sown in peace by those who make peace, and so on. Romans chapter 7 has another mention of the same, the fruit of righteousness. So Paul prays for abounding love, 
that will lead them to approve the best things in their lives, a very discerning kind of love, that they would be sincere without hypocrisy, that they would be without sinful offense before the day of Christ comes, and that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And the end of this is the praise and glory of God. Psalm 115 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto you be the glory. And that's the message of the opening chapter in Ephesians, that the work of God in salvation, Father, Son, and Spirit, is to the praise of his glory. The result of your life should be the glory and praise of God. That's why we exist, not to glorify and praise ourselves, but to honor and worship God, and that should be evident in us. I conclude then this morning this way. This prayer is a great reminder of what God wants us to be like. In fact, verse 6 says he's already begun a work in us to make us this way. And he is bringing that work to completion. And one way that he does that, it's interesting, one way that God brings that work to completion is by letting you read the prayer of the Apostle Paul to see what Paul's priorities are for the lives of the Philippian believers. In part by Paul's prayer, in part by our exposition of that prayer, and in part by our adherence to the values expressed in that prayer. God will also complete his work in in us fellow Christians as we pray for them in this way. In other words, I'm not concerned just about my own progress in the faith, but I'm concerned about yours and yours and yours and all of you and those of you watching, that God would cause you to have an abounding love, a discerning, knowledgeable, biblical love to prove those things that are excellent, to be sincere, to be filled with righteousness. This is what God wants for us. He's completing his work in us as Others pray for us those very things. So not only do we thank God for partnership in the gospel and express our love for people in prayer, but we pray that their love, their love toward God and others may not grow cold, that it may be abounding, that it may be discerning, certainly that it wouldn't be sappy and foolish love. Pray that they will live so that God can judge them in that day as having done well. And I pray that that's the case for me and for you today as we think about this prayer of Paul for the Philippian church. Join me as we close. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you brought this to our attention this morning, and I pray that it's been a challenge to us that perhaps in ways I haven't even thought of in the study this past few days that you have used this message in the heart and life of individuals here to change them and change me as well. Lord, may this assembly of believers have an abounding love for one another and for you. May it drive them to uh, be discerning and careful in their conduct without offense toward one another. Lord, that we might be known to be your disciples by the love that we have. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.